We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. The world for people who think... Hi, and welcome to Behind the Headlines on the Salt Radio Network. I'm Joe Quinn, and my co-host this week is Neil Radley, as usual. Hi, everyone. And we also have a special guest, Amari Rose, who is in the studio this week to talk to us on on everything, I suppose. Yeah, so say hi there. Hi, everyone. You're very welcome. Um, yeah, on all things Dutch. Yes, and Amari... Um, an editor writer for one of our sister sites, nl.net. She's sort of covering the signs from the Dutch world. But she's also written in English for Southnet, so we'll be asking her about some of the topics covered on MH17, anti-Russian sanctions, anti-Russian and so on. So to kick us off this week, what topic do you want to start with? First thing that strikes me is there's been quite a few anniversaries, not anniversaries, a few commemorations of various things, some historical, some recent. Um, yesterday was the 70th anniversary of the new king of Nagasaki. Of course, prior to that, there was Hiroshima. Um, Today is the Two days, excuse me. Yesterday was the anniversary of George War, which was really a NATO proxy war, abating, if you like, of Russia that preceded what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, in addition, it's now been a year since protests really kicked off in the U.S. about brutality. A year yesterday, Mike Brown was shot dead by a cop in Ferguson, Ferguson, Missouri, of course, hence the Ferguson protests. So, um, another, well, the main thing, uh, not the main thing, but one of the things that, I mean, we're a year away from what I call the American games because it may as well be as serious Olympic games every four years Americans elect a leader to represent them on the world stage and to fix all the problems but it's such farcical entertainment and that's all it is I mean the actual leadership that it actually does and the process of getting that person elected and uh, that's what I'd like to kick off with this week. Um, there have been <laughs> some glorious quotes. It's, I couldn't believe it when Donald Trump was actually seriously as a candidate, but he is leading the polls as a Republican leading, nominee. Leading what polls? <laughs> the made-up ones. The made-up ones? Yeah. 
Perhaps. That's the level of the farcical. Well, if it's made up or not, nature. it's whether or not the American people have believed that that's the case, or it is actually the case. He's in that position. Whether it's a creating reality or it actually reflects the reality, it doesn't matter. So they recently began... Uh, well, it matters in the sense that uh, if it's being manufactured, then that's the kind of uh, person that is being chosen for the American people by the people who make uh-huh. those choices. So it's certainly interesting that they would choose someone like that to foist upon the American people and tell them this is who you uh, want for your president. And then everybody would say, oh, really? Okay, I want something. And uh, he may well end up being president. And, you know, it will be fairly farcical, yeah. But then most of what happens in American politics is a complete and utter farce. So, uh, I mean, people who actually represent uh, the interest and the desires and the will of most American people are never given an opportunity to actually assume any kind of uh, office or power positions in, in, in political life. I mean, that's the way it's always it's been for, well, a long time. Because um, I don't believe, you know, I don't believe American, majority of the American people are still, <clears throat> or that they are so uh, so stupid or so ignorant uh, that they don't understand, you know, basic kind of... Um, basic logic and basic sense, they still, I think, maintain the capacity. Showing uh, Ron Paul's been around for quite a while, and I think uh, anybody who hears Ron Paul, but that's maybe the issue because uh, maybe a lot of people don't get to hear the people who would actually echo and voice the kind of things that they're actually interested in um, because the media uh, operates service to the powers that be in system such as it is in, in the US and uh, they don't allow they don't give airtime and don't allow such uh, people who would represent the genuine interest of American people to ever reach the ears or the eyes of the American people because they have it on the media so yeah it's not as simple as, it's not as simple as they're manipulating and um, rigging polls etc and totally disregarding the actual votes or interests of the American people, American people are being uh, prevented from knowing what their choices really are. Because I'd say there's a lot of people in the US who don't know who Ron Paul is uh, and have never heard of him when they should have. But I think those people who have heard Ron Paul, it's the political divide, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't really, it's nonsense. Um, I think all relatively sane, rational, semi-intelligent American people who listen to Ron Paul or who would listen to Ron Paul would uh, immediately be able to recognize that he's talking a lot of sense, that he's far better than any of the It's can change from these many long years of warmongering and um, kind of police state, burgeoning police state uh, tactics. So, yeah, uh, this is disappoint you Joe but Ron Paul is not on the list no I know he's been on the right time and he's an example of someone uh, doesn't is, is prevented someone still exists as a, as a rational sensible sane choice for the leader of 
uh, America. But such people, when they come along, never, never allow to get very far along in the process of becoming a president of the U.S., for example, because for the reasons I just gave, the media does not promote them. And what the media says is what the media goes. Media in the U.S. forms American public opinion for them. Mm-hmm. And it also can censor, it can, it can withhold information and regularly does withhold information from the American people so that their own, the American people's choices or their awareness of what their choice is is extremely limited. Mm-hmm. Um, so when it comes to it, the kind of people like, you know, the usual suspects and newcomers who are the same, the same club again, uh, what do you call them, Trump, those are the people that are offered to the American people by the media. Mm-hmm. And we all, everybody knows how it yeah. happens. I mean, yeah. they, buy, they buy media space. I mean, if you've got multiple millions of dollars, then you can buy space in newspapers and on TV slots and compete, you know. Well, it's the first TV debate of the Republican primary. Mm-hmm. There are 10 of them, I believe, 10 candidates for the Republican Party nominee on the stage in a TV debate that's hosted by Fox News or Fox News. And in the center, they Donald, the Donald, Don the Donald Trump, who is most known to Americans as he's, he's a TV man. He's the guy who hosts the TV show. And when they do hear what he has to say about anything, Right, he hosts to to a rational ear. It's it's a caricature. It's he he spouts absurdities. The point I'm getting, he's given the seriousness of an actual platform to spout his nonsense, uh, much of which is absolutely is, is insane. However, he has been saying some things that are close to the mark, but which implicate him in the process as part of the problem but I'm going to play a clip this is a couple of minutes from the TV debate took place and uh, the Donald has asked a question by the moderator and this is what he says Obamacare is one of the things you call a disaster complete disaster Yes, saying it needs to be repealed and replaced correct now, 15 years ago, you called yourself a liberal on health care. You were for a single-payer system, a Canadian-style system. Why were you for that then, and why aren't you for it now? What I'd like to see is a private system without the artificial lines around every state. I have a big company with thousands and thousands of employees, and if I'm negotiating in New York or in New Jersey or in California, I have, like, one bidder. Nobody can bid. You know why? Because the insurance companies are making a fortune because they have control of the politicians, of course, with the exception of the politicians of the stage. But they have total control of the politicians. They're making a fortune. Get rid of the artificial lines, and you will have yourself great plans. And then we have to take care of the people that can't take care of themselves, and I will do that through a different system. Hey, Mr. Trump, hold on one second. I got a newsflash. I know. Hold on, Senator Paul. Newsflash. The Republican Party's been fighting against a single-payer system for a decade. See, I think you're on the wrong side of this if you're still arguing for a single payer. I'm not, I'm not, I don't think you heard me. You're having a hard time tonight. All right, let, <laughs> Mr. Trump, it's not just your past support for single payer health care. You've also supported a host of other liberal 
policies. You've also donated to several Democratic candidates, Hillary Clinton included, Nancy Pelosi. You explained away those donations, saying you did that to get business-related favors. And you said recently, quote, when you give, they do whatever the hell you want them to do. You better believe it. So what specifically did they do? If I ask them, if I need them, you know, most of the people on this stage I've given to, just so you understand, a lot of money. Not me. Not me. <laughs> but you're welcome to give me a check, Donald, if you like. Many of them. Actually, to be clear, That's he right. supported not, Charlie Crist. Not much. Hey, Charlie, but I, I, I have. Donald, if you end I have campaign, get, I hope you will give to me. Good. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good to me, Governor. I will tell you that our system is broken. I give to many people. Before this, before two months ago, I was a businessman. I give to everybody. When they call, I give. And you know what? When I need something from them, two years later, three years later, I call them. They are there for me. So and that's get? a broken system. So what would you get from Hillary Clinton and Nancy Pelosi? Well, I'll tell you what. With Hillary Clinton, I said, be at my wedding, and she came to my wedding. You know why? <laughs> she had no choice because I gave. Wow. So here's a guy who buys political favors and can then turn out a political candidate on the same platform from with people with whom he is admitting that he has bought political favors from, including Hillary Clinton and Democratic candidates, because, of course, as Rand Paul, who was there with the news flash, pointed out debate it's absolutely clear that someone like trump is hedging his bets when he's giving money left right and center now i'm not calling on this because he has done wonders to expose the system and how it is but the, the fact that you have a guy that and put himself forward as someone who's the system is broken let me in and i'll fix it the system is broken, but it's worked fine for me. It's got me here, hasn't it? Yeah. The farce <clears throat> of this is just, it, it's such a that can actually, that they must have known, this, you know, all. They do know he's off the wall. I'm talking about the powers that the real government in the U.S. I'm not even going to entertain that they're seriously him for president. However, I'm actually starting to hope. Become president. Well, United it would be American American people who who have just turned a blind eye to everything that has gone on in the U.S. over the past well for a long time. Um, they they would deserve someone. But that doesn't make them any or another Western so-called democracies because they all have a bunch of idiots for a bunch of you know idiots or slime balls or psychopaths or whatever for leaders as well. But I suppose what sets America apart in a sense is that is that they they're not allowing by allowing Trump on the and right there as a presidential candidate, um, they're they're not trying to cover it up anymore. They're not even pretending anymore. Uh, but Trump just strikes me as a he's he's not a very intelligent person. He's not a very bright person, except in a cunning, predatorial kind of way. In terms of being diplomatic, strategic, anything like that, he he's a nightmare. You know, he's just a he's a blowhard, uh, 
he's kind of guy you'd, you'd really want to walk away from if you happen to end up sitting beside him in a bar or something. You'd want to get away from him as quickly as possible. One of those guys, you know, no shame, and would sell it basically. And he's like a salesman, uh, that kind. So those people, yeah, you can understand how those people are smart in a cunning kind of way uh-huh. in terms of sale pitches and manipulating people, but uh, they're also quite dumb. They come across very intellectual people, and he exposes intellect there by um, by not noticing his own uh, contradiction where he mentioned he said that um, uh, the the fact that he gave money to Hillary Clinton not only is that others standing there with others standing there with him but he gave to uh, recently we, we suppose to Democratic politicians who was a secretary in the other politicians in the Democratic Party, and he's running for as a, as a Republican. So why would he be giving money to their to their funds or their campaigns? I mean, he's he obviously you said he's hedging his bets, yeah, but he's running as a Republican. How can he convince anybody of his integrity? Uh, and he basically sell himself by and anybody, but still claim to hold an allegiance to some kind of Republican idea. No, I, I didn't include it in this clip earlier in this debate. A Fox moderator asked for a show of hands from the 10 candidates. Is there anyone here tonight who would not, they did not win a nomination mm-hmm. as an independent candidate? Mm-hmm. And Trump raised his hand yeah. shot up right away. So he doesn't care. He's basically on a ticket of, I don't care about the Republican that, Party, but a, I'm just. But a, pol- a political mind goes, oh, <clears throat> Jesus, I'd never admit to something like that. That would be the end of me. But this guy's just straight in there. Because he, well, he is. It, him favor because he got cheered. Well, he has the freedom to do that because uh, he isn't uh, in the system in that sense, and that way, that's why he technically he's a uh, a long shot. Basically, he's a he's the kind of uh, the under or, or in this camp. But so he has who basically I don't give a crap more or less about the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. I'll use any of them just to get to be president. So mm-hmm. he's basically saying I'll do anything including sell my grandmother, to get to be president. I just want to be president because I want to fix this country. But he says that part of the, uh, the way that the country is broken, uh, you can buy candidates. You can give money to a political a public servant, supposedly, who's elected by the people. A private person like him can give money to a politician who's meant to be doing uh, fulfilling the will or serving the will of the of the population that voted for them. A private person can a load of money. And they will do what that one person does, most likely in contrast to the will of the people. That, uh, so he says, yeah, uh, and that's why the system is broken, and he's going to fix it. But again, there's a complete lack of uh, of seriousness about him or, or um, a sense of integrity or, you know, he's not a very person, obviously. So how could you expect that someone would genuinely want to fix uh, assist, uh, a broken system where polit- polit- politicians mm-hmm. take money to uh, implement laws or pass laws or give favors uh, uh, to individuals and fix that when he takes advantage of it. Surely if you were principled, if you thought that that was a, the, a wrong, uh, a fault or a flaw in the political system, uh, you wouldn't take advantage of it. Like last week, you know? Yeah. It's like going and saying, it's like saying you know, last week I was out um, selling drugs, you know, and I made quite a lot of money off selling drugs. 
uh, and that's uh, and that's kind of that's a drug problem on our streets, by the way. That's a problem in in our in our society. The selling of drugs, and I was doing that last week, and that's why if you elect me, I will uh, clean up the drug. I will will stop uh, (laughs) drugs. You were doing it last week. You obviously aren't serious about. I mean, what your principles suddenly changed overnight or in the past uh, in the past few weeks? I mean, it's ridiculous. The whole thing's just a farce, you know. So um, it should be a farce. Listen, the New York Times, right? The kind of newspaper of record in the U.S. Generally, favor of Democrat candidate reported on this. It should have been like part this TV performance, but they gave it this this kudos. They gave it this gravitas. And they said, well, it does look like uh, Trump, you know, he definitely won that, you know. It's his honesty. I mean, talking it up. His honesty, yeah. Well, that says a lot about, you know, of course, that's the media again telling the people uh, what they, telling the people that black is white, basically. That's what the American media and the Western media does. It tells the population that black is white, effectively. But, uh, here, um, Jonathan on the left, um, Tom. Jonathan, are you? Yes. Um, Hello, Jonathan. Well, th- thank you for let- letting me speak here. Um, I am from Florida. Um, my history of voting is uh, I first voted for Clinton, and this is in the, uh, I think, 92. And then I voted for uh-huh. uh, all Democratic people. I voted for Obama twice. I'm 51 years old. Just, and I'm white. I'm a white male. Um, I am a... Uh, I want to speak on this Donald Trump issue. Um, I um, I don't know if I would vote for him if he was actually uh, became the uh, contender against the Democratic uh, Party's choice, which would be maybe uh, Clinton. I would probably vote for Donald Trump. And um, I think he is uh, – and not because I think that he is, uh, you know um, – in line with my particular ideology. Um, I think the system has become so bad, so corrupted. When he said that the system is broken in respect to campaign donations influencing behavior on the part of politicians, that was exactly right. And um, people have an innate sense that it's unfair. And we have, but we have such a momentum in this country of corruption and propaganda and, and, Ongoing wars. The um, I've been following the whole Russia situation for over a year, and um, the more research I've done, I've become a fan of uh, supporter of Vlad- Vladimir Putin, and um, I think that Donald Trump has has made more sense in his comments with respect to Russia, the Russia situation, the U.S. Uh, NATO escalation of this conflict, which could bring us to nuclear war. Um, he's made more sense than any other. Uh, um, person in the um in, in, among contention for the presidency mm-hmm. yeah and, um go ahead oh well i was just saying that um he's he's got he's already achieved the fame and the wealth and so his motivations for being president at this time um um I don't know. I can't get inside of his mind, but maybe he sincerely would like to see the the country reformed in some 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 basic common sense ways that uh, I don't see other people among the uh, political establishment um, engaging. Jonathan, let me ask. 
How much power do you think the president of the United States actually has? I really think that you could look at it a couple of ways. Um, I really think that the president has a, a tremendous power, but um, whether or not they have the uh, the fortitude and the strength and the courage to um, to engage that power, that's the question. I think that when they killed John F. Kennedy at high noon in Dallas on November 22nd, mm-hmm. 1963, I think that was an example of a straight-up coup d'etat. And um, I think that intelligent people don't buy the story of the dominant powers, the dominant narrative with respect to John F. Kennedy's assassination, that there was a lone gunman. So people tend to uh, they tend to be um, kind of cynical people in the way of uh, I've seen uh, Obama and Clinton and Kerry and and all these politicians be they're not they're not they don't hold to ideals and they don't they don't uh, muster the fortitude and the courage to actually address problems honestly and head on and uh, because of maybe deep set fear and um, maybe kind of a uh, a game changer uh, he'd be a wild card in the mix and um, I think that, like, w- with response to this, his comments on health care, for example, I think anybody that looks at the situation intelligently would would uh, advocate and support a single-payer system outside of any corporate profit-making entities. And um, But, um, of course, like, when I, when I listen to Donald Trump's uh, exposition on that, on that subject, he's defending himself um, among a crowd of uh, right-wing Republican corporate types. You know, he kind of has to say that, no, this system's broken. What Obama did was was crap, and we need to do better. But, no, I, I don't support any kind of government. You know, he's got to say that he's going to support a free market solution to that problem. So that you could say that, oh, that's being disingenuous and not honest. But on the, on the what what is the goal? The goal is for him to actually achieve the presidency. So, um, you know, I'm just saying that I would support him. I was I was actually determined not to vote, you know, because I've just been so freaking disappointed with the imperialism that never ends in the corruption. And um, I was just not going to vote. But if and I probably won't. But if uh, Trump is the contender, you know, by some outside chance, which I, I doubt, but it could happen, I would I would I would most definitely vote for Donald Trump just to uh, upset the apple cart, so to speak. Yes, the, the situation, that's where it's got to at this at this point, really, where, uh, I mean, obviously Trump isn't an, an anybody's ideal candidate, I suppose, but um, it's strange that someone like him and just, just confidence, speaking a few truths, and because his personality is kind of, to a certain extent, stardom, you know, his, his fame, uh, that he becomes, uh, could become the people's choice. Uh, simply because people are just so tired of the same old usual doing the same over again. Yeah, and and again, I I don't see his motivation as being, oh, I want to be the ruler of the world like Napoleon or something like that. I think that he's already achieved this massive fame and fortune. Um, I don't don't see him as as being some kind of like – ideologue in, in the way of, let's say, Adolf Hitler or something like that, you know, um, 
I, yeah. his, I just, I just, I, I, I see that maybe he wants to, to correct the course of the country, and maybe you know, like a lot of these people that are ego, ego, uh, egotistical and um, somewhat narcissistic, and that's by dint of the character types, character types that we develop within our societies. You know, um, of course mm. he would, he would, he would love to achieve the, uh, the ultimate uh, position as the boss the ruler of the the country, you know, and that, but I don't see that he would go on some kind of maniacal trajectory. And, and as a matter of fact, um, I've been so concerned about the situation with Russia, the demonization of Putin in Russia and the, and, and the, um, it seemed seemingly desire to start a war with Russia. I've been so concerned about that, that when I heard some, the, the few comments that he's made on it, he just signed, sounds like, incredibly like reasonable situation so mm. anyway, yeah that's all i, I think, have to I think at the very least yeah okay john thanks for your call all right thank you Bye-bye. thanks for sharing your thoughts take Bye-bye. care uh we'll just go straight in another call here kent from uh west virginia on the line hi there kent yeah uh, i'm having a deja vu um I lived through the um, the um, emergence of Jimmy Carter. I'm telling you that there, the parallels are striking. Um, what you had with Jimmy Carter was, of course, that was the end of the Nixon, uh, you know, the Nixon scandals and everything. And um, you had a huge field of Democratic uh, congressmen and senators, and um, just like you do have now with Republicans, because they think. You know, they can, anybody who, if they get the nomination, they're going to win because everybody's against Obama. So they said back in that day, if you got the Democratic nomination, you got the, you know, because the attitude of the country. And all of a sudden, out of this pack of, um, you know, um, politicians was this goober, Jimmy Carter. And he he won his primary out, this uh, caucus out in Iowa where nobody had ever heard of him. And he only won, like, by about 400 votes. He got, like, 27 percent, and the next guy got, like, 24.5, and it all divided up. But all of a sudden, oh, who was this guy? And it was just all over the news, who he was, his picture, and they just grabbed onto him. And then you had these stupid Americans going down to Plains, Georgia, and, you know, picking peanuts for him and, you know, and going to his brothers. And I'm I'm experiencing a deja vu. With this Trump, you know, you've got all these bland sort of guys, and here's this guy out saying all this nonsense, you know, and uh, mm. uh, and, they're, and they're just thinking, well, that's just great, and he's, I'm, I'm, I, I have the impression he's going to win, even if you know they're, they're digging up all these scandals, you know, all this stuff about, about his comments about these women. Well, they're going to they're going to marginalize that, you know, they marginalized things with Clinton, you know, he was, you know, Trump is. He'll say rude things, but he probably wouldn't go so far as to do the things that Clinton did, you know. And, like, when he talks mm. about single-payer, now, single-payer is what, you know, you as uh, you're probably familiar with the uh, the NHS in England, but he's mm. talking about single-payer. He's a businessman. He, does, he has to deal with every little state, and he has little different contracts, and so that makes life complicated for him. He wants to have one contract. For one, you know, so it's, he makes one deal, and that, and that makes life simple for him. But then he mentioned down mm. at the end, that, at the end, of it, they said, "Well, and for people that aren't in the system, well, we'll deal with them in some other way." So that's not the concept of single payer, as you know, as people think, where everybody's included. Same sort of system True. where 
people are in and the, and the haves and have-nots. And this notion of him talking about the the insurance companies making money, well, who, when when's he never been against making money? That's his whole modus operandi, you know. He's got a gold-plated Trump Towers and everything. And uh, you were talking mm-hmm. about Ron. You were talking about Ron Paul. And this, this, and, you know, do I give you a comparison between Carter? When Carter was running, the the um, the the um, the phrase was constantly, once he emerged, can he win? Can he win? Can he win? With Ron Paul, he can't win. And you talk about the media. The media was ginning up Jimmy Carter, can he win with this excitement? And vice versa with Ron Paul, he can't win. Because he was getting all this mm-hmm. tremendous support everywhere, and the media was telling him he can't win. And uh, I was listening to... Um, you know how they loop, if you get a YouTube, they'll loop one video and then they'll loop into a second one? Sometimes. Mm-hmm. I was listening to one where he'd given a speech out in Arizona, and uh, it was a blowover, so I fell asleep. And I and it looped onto the second video, and there's a guy here in the States called um, Howard Stern. He's a, uh, as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. he's a degenerate. Um, but anyway, and they, I woke up and I did listen to him, believe it or not, for the first time in my whole life, but because I was seeing with Trump. And Trump and Stern were sitting there talking, gossiping about Hollywood stars and, and celebrities, Paris Hilton. And they were, they were I was just, the, 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 you know, the, the, um, the commonality, the sort of um, common sort of attitude he had. And he sat there for like an hour talking about celebrities and, well, he, he'd mentioned the name of a movie. Oh, yeah, she came into my apartment building because he wanted to rent apartments with him. And, you know, and he was talking about this Paris Hilton and how she's probably jealous because all these other girls that sort of rose to prominence on her coattails are now getting a lot of attention and poor old Paris. And I thought that was just, if, but that's not, I don't want that kind of, want that kind of idiot run in my country. But, but he's going to win. Like this guy, this previous caller, I know Americans. I've been listening to like, uh, and they're just all, they're just enamored with because because he's saying these things and he says what I think. And if you ever try to piece together what he's saying, whatever he's going to do is good for Donald Trump, and that's not good for the average American, as far as I'm concerned. But I think he's going to win. You know, I mean, I just I've I hate to say it because we saw Jimmy Carter, but I really do. I think he's going to win, and I really hate to, I hate to see it come, but. Uh, but I think no, it'll be fun, you know. It's better than a Clinton or a Bush, no? Or is it? Well, it might be fun, but uh, amusing. Yeah, I think it would be be amusing. But um, <laughs> I, you know, I just don't know what he'd do because uh, Kent, know, there is nothing. Who's who? Who's he going to pick for his handlers? You know. Well, we know they all. They all. They're all. It's all pretty much uh, cut and cut and dried. Who, who runs everything anyway? But I think he he mentioned that he would have he would think of using uh, Sarah Palin as a as a, as his running mate. Well, yeah, he probably he would say he'd say you know off the cuff things like that, and uh, you never know he might. I mean, he's kind of I'd, with the, with the momentum ticket. he's got, he could he could probably do it and get away with it. You know? Yeah, yeah I'd love to see it. It'd be great. Well, well, <laughs> it'd be good for a laugh. If, you know, you guys can laugh over there. You know, why don't you come over here and live with it? <laughs> well, you know, can have a good laugh at it there as well. You know, can't much else to yeah. do. The thing is, yeah. we're not we're not seriously uh, analyzing the situation with a view to 
assessing who's likely to win, who would be the least worst option. We're actually being pretty facetious here in terms of giving this presidential race any kind of coverage at all. The point here is that it's pure entertainment. Whoever ultimately gets in power, America's on this downward trajectory. And by extension, it's not just pointing the finger over there. It's the entire global system that's on the same downward trajectory. It's, it's the farce that we're highlighting. And I wouldn't worry about what you can and can't do and uh, encourage you to take and to do what you're doing. Remember, hold on, I'm getting a deja vu here. And then observe the situation. Comment on it where possible, like you're doing here on the show. And just take this detached view from it for your own sanity, because it's going to happen one way or the other. It's the whole ship's going down. Yeah, well, that's what I'm trying to do. I mean, I'm just sitting back sort of, uh, I'm just um, watching it, as you say, and I think I can't believe this is happening, but I think it's going to happen. And I, uh, But the thing of it is, it goes on for 18 months over here. That's the big I problem. know, it's a nightmare. They wear you down through through boredom, you know. But just take a... Like we're saying there, take an anthropologist view. Imagine you're an anthropologist and you're somewhat of a different species than the rest of the human beings and you're just here to observe and document, uh, you know, human, <laughs> the human animal at this, uh, as it, as it interacts, uh, or as it, uh, as it expresses itself at this point in human evolution, you know, and you're just taking notes and going, hmm, that's interesting and yeah, that's crazy and wow, yeah. yeah. That's the most yeah. sane approach, approach, you know. I think so. Well, that's that's um, that's the way I've resolved myself to do it. You know. Yeah. But, uh, uh, another thing, another just another parallel is I do remember that like when Carter emerged, the um, the, the the party apparatchiks were all in a bother because he had upset the apple. You know, he had um, uh, upset their little system, and we're seeing that now where this 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 guy said, "Well, you're not coming to our our little meeting because." You said something biological about women, and I don't want my little little sons and daughters to hear you talking that way. So it's it's just there's another sort of thing. Back in those days, they immediately after Carter got elected, he changed all the rules and this sort of stuff. So it's just uh, I just it's coming. So I just sit back and watch it and try to um, observe. Enjoy the show. <laughs> yeah. Well, it right. will be. It's entertaining. Yeah. It will be more entertaining and pretty. All right, well, thanks. Oh, I can't. Talk to you later. Keep it real. Bye-bye. Yeah, so... Um, One other piece of Washington entertainment news, not to be upstaged, Hillary Klingon, I mean Hillary Clinton, mm-hmm. in her first public fundraiser for her race, got in a selfie with Kimbo Kardashian mm-hmm. and... Kanyahu West, yeah. I think that's their names. Yeah. And it's like all over Twitter. Oh my God. Oh my God. Is I, it, I like Hillary again. Yeah. She just took a selfie with the Kardashian. Kardashian. Kanye <laughs> West. Um, yeah, she's, the, I mean, that. that oh, right. and it happened at Justin Bieber's place. Well, <laughs> well when you put that together, it's amazing <laughs> because it just shows her presidential uh, qualifications, you know? I mean, that makes her a, a family person because well, they're a family well, like. Well, she's also, also interested in pop culture, you know, uh, and it's very important for a person. She's in touch with the people. Well, yeah, yeah, with the ordinary people of this of this world, you know, like the Kardashians, just the ordinary average kind of person, you know. Um, so, well, and, but well, they're not. We know that they aren't the ordinary average persons, but we also know that the ordinary average people really, 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 really like 
the Kardashians. So if Hillary likes them, then she's in touch with the people and what they like to see. So it, it, there's a there's a there's a, a connection there. Obviously, she's tapping. Well, yeah, it, just to be serious for a second. It, again, illustrative of um, the mindset of these the criminal class that they this is their idea of expressing to the masses. Look, you see, we're with you. We're all in touch. You know, we're all no, we like what you like. Like what? Yeah, we like what you like, which we have told you is what you like. So, so Kim helps the campaign by tweeting, I got my selfie. I really loved hearing her speak and hearing her goals for our country. Mm. I mean, that's, that's their idea of how the... Everybody should get naked on the front of magazines. Let's just put it in perspective. 20 years ago, even politicians wouldn't, I don't think, even in the US, have touched this kind of thing with a 10-foot pole. Yeah. It's difficult to, to to be a thinking person in the world today, you know. Um, that's why we try to find strategies to deal with it because, you know, I, a thinking person in the world today shouldn't have any guns in the house. You know what I'm saying? Not that you'd use them against anybody, but you might, you might kill yourself. Uh, so you shouldn't have any guns in your house if you watch closely the, the what's happening in the world and try to make sense of it. Just a FYI there, a bit of advice. Um, yeah. Uh, the reason I asked our first caller, um, Jonathan from Florida, what power he thinks the president in the U.S. has. I mean, does he really have a hotline to, like in the Batman TV series, you know, a hotline to Batman or a hotline to Superman or a hotline to Kremlin or a hotline to, more importantly, to the to the military hierarchy or does he himself have some buttons in the Oval Office that he can push that will launch a nuclear nuclear attack on anybody? Uh, I don't think so. That's just a wild guess. But I don't think the President has that kind of power. Uh, although Jonathan made a good point in that there is potential power in the office of the President mm-hmm. but it takes a particular quality of person a very rare kind of person to exercise that power in a way that uh, attempts to change this established system uh, in the U.S. and by ex- by extension the rest of the world uh, and change it for uh, change it for the better. You know, make some make some good changes. And this is obviously a system that that particular person himself has not uh, or would not have had any involvement in creating and isn't necessarily a part of it. Uh, so it's a very difficult position to, to, to be in, or you can imagine that that's very difficult for a person of, say, integrity and uh, has a sense of honesty and, and justice and righteousness, whatever, to become president and then change a system that is really very deeply entrenched a monolithic and, and ruthless conspiracy. Right, and that, well, he was talking about the commies then, but, mm. uh, <laughs> yeah, he was. kind of left open, no? No, not really. And, uh, well, maybe. But, uh, anyway, the problem is, is that the system is perpetuated, is, is being run by someone who isn't the president, because it's a, it's a system, the current system in the world today has been ongoing for many years, many decades, and it uh, 
perpetuates itself or it's perpetuated by people behind the scenes. Mm. There's obviously uh, people, other authors and uh, political writers and stuff have talked about uh, a deep government. JFK uh, did say something. Or, or something, a shadow government, deep government, yeah. whatever you want to call JFK it. JFK said he would smash it into a thousand pieces. Well, that was the CIA. Win. But there's also just the general term of a deep government. It does, it's not limited to, but it's certainly uh, maybe even centered on the intelligence agencies and mm. those kind of uh, backroom political types who pursue domestic and, in particular, American foreign policy above and beyond uh, the the kind of oversight or anything of, of Congress or of the president or of the office of the president. Obviously, you know, that's self-evident that that kind of a system exists. So the idea of a, of a president coming in and trying to buck the system in that way and go against the system, well, the last person tried to do that was JFK, and that's what happened to him. And I think every successor president after that uh, was well aware uh certainly didn't believe the childish fairy tale of Lee Harvey Oswald uh, killing JFK and realized uh, that it was that system or the members of that system that took out JFK because he tried to go against the system. And this is back in 1962, where 50 years, uh, more than 50 years down the, down the road from then. Uh, so I think plausibly or realistically, uh, the chance of somebody coming along First of all, if someone, the chance of someone getting, someone getting through the selection process to be uh, a president and being a person of integrity is extremely slim. If that were, that were to happen, uh, such a person would not last a week or might last a week, but not two uh, after they decided to implement that kind of a, of a, a shake-up of the established order. So, in that sense, whatever power is invested, actual power, actual ability to exercise power that there is in the office of the President of the United States is uh, irrelevant. It's an unfulfilled potential power and uh, will remain unfulfilled in the sense of it being a power to change something for the good. People who become President, they do what they're told. And I think behind, in the back of their mind, they're doing what they're told because they fear for, for they value their lives and that whatever power they have to be president, quote unquote. So that's the reality of the situation. So yeah, that's why it's a farce. When you when you posit that as the the ultimate or the final uh, conclusion or the reality of the situation then everything that comes before that in terms of electing someone to the, to the office of the president is, is obviously a joke. It's, it's, it's just a, it's a show. And Donald Trump is very is a good choice for that because he's a showman, you know. He hosts the Miss World competition. It may as well be a Miss World competition. Mr. President competition. That's mm-hmm. what it should be called. It shouldn't be called the presidential election. It should be called the Mr. President competition where you have male members of American society from the 1%, all the rich and famous, who, you know, parade on stage in front of American people and show their assets. Uh, they should be in bikinis, I think. <laughs> and, you know, they should talk about how they want to change the world. In fact, they do, right? They do, like Miss World says, you know, well, how would you... What, yeah, what, they're asked one question. If you were to do something to change yeah. the world, what would you If you were you president, what would you do? Or I yeah. would... Um, I would I would have world peace. Yeah. And, and I tell Mr. Putin he's very, very bad. Yes. And that's pretty much what it is. It's a Mr. President competition. Very similar to... 
the process of the Miss World competition. And that's why Donald Trump uh, probably has a good chance of, of winning because he ran these competitions in the past and now he's a contestant in one. He is. The Donald is the apprentice mm. of the Sith Lords. Yep. But he would get on well with Putin, I think. Because Putin seems to get on well with uh, rather simple-minded Western <laughs> politicians. He seems to have... Who are you thinking of? Uh, well, Bush. Bush, indeed. And I looked into his eyes and I saw got a, well, a figure of his And soul. he liked Bush. Putin actually liked Bush, you know, at least, you know... He could deal uh, with him. He could... He could he wasn't such a hard-nosed uh, American Empire devotee. Uh, he was a bit more simple-minded, and Putin could kind of at least talk to him, you know, politely and stuff. Uh, and he also like he also seems to get on well to a certain extent. Berlusconi, who's a bit of a buffoon as well, and he seems to get on a little bit better also with Holland uh, amongst the European. Uh, other European leaders, uh, Holland, and Holland seems to be a bit of a, you know, so there's a somewhat doofusy aspect to Holland as well. So yeah, Trump would at least Putin would probably say, well, geez, you know, if it's between Clinton and another Bush, if it's between Hillary Clinton and Jeb Bush, or or Trump, I'll go with Trump, you know, because you know what Putin and Russia are doing and are going to continue to do is largely uh, it's not related to who holds the the office of the president who is president in the US it doesn't really matter to Putin and the Russians who is uh, president in the US but they could put Barney the purple dinosaur in there and it wouldn't make much difference to the Russians because the Russians understand what we just said before which is that there's a secret there's a system behind uh, the high office of president, and it's higher, much higher than the high office of president, and that really runs the show, and that's what they have to deal with, and that's what they have been dealing with. The Russians have been dealing with that system for a long time. Um, you know, of course, they talk to the spokespeople of it, you know, foreign secretaries and different things, but, um, yeah. So, um, I want to touch now on the various war theatres, as the Pentagon likes to call them. They're not really wars, and they certainly aren't theatre, but in their sick minds, I guess they are. Uh, first up, District Sirach, which is kind of the colloquial Pentagon term for the new country they've formed in the Middle East. A uh, little development. You might remember two years ago now, to this very week, in fact, the... Syria use chemical weapons. Oh my God, we need to invade now. Hysteria began. Uh, it just popped back in the news recently. I think at the instigation of. No, it was it was it was the West as usual. Nothing nothing changed there. But there was unusual in that Russia agreed to a UN uh, resolution to investigate Syrian chemical weapons. I think. Related to the incident two years ago, well, the non-incident. Well, there was an incident, but not as portrayed. Um, there's some things afoot there. Russia is now in agreement, not just on Syria's alleged use of chemical weapons, but has offered to help the West in its fight against ISIS. 
the Kremlin hasn't said anything specific yet, but they have acknowledged that there is what they're calling a Putin plan. Uh, the only clue I can find on what that may be related to is a suggestion from Turkey's leader, Erdogan, Erdogan. who says that Putin may give up on Assad. Don't know. Can't believe anything he says because Turkey does one thing and then says one thing, does something else. So, But yeah, there's, there seems to be something afoot there where you may have more direct Russian involvement I mean, that would be... You can imagine Russian military the Russian, yeah. in Syria also. <laughs> well, Yeah, but um, Lavrov, he condemns U.S. airstrikes in Syria. He didn't like the decision from U.S. to start um, throwing strikes at Syrian uh, civilians. Yeah, that, that's... So, go on. Yeah, that's it. Well, that's a recent development, isn't it? The, yeah. I think we touched on it last week or recently where there was a terrorist attack blamed on ISIS inside Turkey. Mm-hmm. Within 24 hours, the Turks are up in the air bombing Syrian targets. Mm. Mm-hmm. It, no, in fact, it later emerged they were bombing Kurdish fighters, anti-Assad, but also anti-ISIS in northern Syria. And that was, that was just completely transparent what the Turks were up to there. But it's it's gone further than that, as you point out, the US military. They have, is directly Yeah, they have conducted their first lethal airstrike in northern Syria, I think last Wednesday. Leaving from Turkish bases. Oh uh, yes. Okay. So. Yeah, well the, the the story that's behind this is that the US has officially declared that they are going to that they reserve the right to attack Syrian military forces, although they call it um, take defensive measures against Syrian military forces directly, if those Syrian military forces attack U.S.-backed or trained and armed free Syrian rebels who are fighting against ISIS. Uh, the story is that the, the official story is that the U.S. has trained and funded and armed and clothed and fed and you know washed and given free drugs to and given yeah. free drugs and to uh, a bunch of quote unquote Syrian rebels. They've been doing this for the past four years, basically since the phony Syrian revolution was kicked off. But <clears throat> they've now officially admitted, or recently in the past year or two, they've admitted that they did. Uh, fund and train a certain group of these free Syrian rebels. They they weren't they weren't happy. They weren't willing to admit this officially. There's a lot of stuff came out in the papers where various different polit- um, security officials, unnamed sources, etc., said that this was happening. The White House wasn't willing to admit this openly until ISIS came on the scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, because beforehand, before ISIS, if they were funding and arming and training Syrian rebels, it was directly against the Syrian government. Now they can say it, and they have just recently said it officially, that they are training and funding these Syrian rebels, not against the Syrian government, but against ISIS, which everybody can accept because they're the head choppers, right? And yeah, the US military should be helping uh, Syrian rebels to fight against them. But this is def- 
failing to remember the fact that the Syri- so-called Syrian rebels were formed originally to attack the Syrian government and to overthrow the Syrian government, not to fight against ISIS. So maybe now they're fighting against ISIS, supposedly in this ridiculously murky kind of, you know, overlapping kind of war. That, the, the truth of which hard never comes out in the press. Maybe uh, the Syrian rebels are fighting against ISIS, but they're still fighting against the Syrian government. But the U.S. government now claims that it has the right to, in some way or other, attack Syrian government forces if they attack Syrian rebels who are trying to overthrow the Syrian government, but who, from the U.S.'s point of view, are really fighting against ISIS. So they support the Syrian rebels. They'll give them weapons and training, all that kind of stuff, to fight ISIS but not to fight the Syrian government officially. Mm-hmm. All of this is complete and utter bullshit, obviously. This is just a justification, a way, a backdoor Where does way. a rebel end and a terrorist start in this context? Well, not even that. It's, I mean, it's like you give some guy a gun who's fighting against two separate enemies, and you say, you use that gun only to shoot against that guy, not against the other guy, okay? Even though both are your enemy. Okay, whatever. So obviously this is just a way for the U.S. to fuel the illegal, unjust, undemocratic... Uh, phony revolution, armed revolution against the Syrian government. They wanted to, like you were saying a couple of years ago, they wanted to have NATO bomb Syria and bomb Assad's army, uh, but they weren't. Russia prevented them from doing that. So this is simply a backdoor way now. And it's strange that ISIS came on the scene as a justification for this, or that that's one thing that ISIS is being used for, to justify officially the U.S. government funding anti-Assad rebels. Not against Assad, against ISIS, because everybody knows that they're scary and they should be. So it's just for the people, you know. The people can can accept the U.S. government giving taxpayers money to combat ISIS, but it's a bit more debatable that they would be doing it to overthrow a democratic, democratically elected government in Syria. Of course, it's just... it's. Lies, manipulations, it's amplification all over the place. It's just, but it's very clear at the same time uh-huh. what's actually going on. The lengths they will go to. I mean, mm, Assad has to go. <clears throat> Regime has to change. We're restructuring the Middle East. Come hell or high water, that's that's the strategy to, to the middle of this. And we will do anything to make that happen. Yeah, I don't know if they're restructuring the Middle East uh, as much as just sowing a bunch of chaos in the Middle East, that's their game plan at this stage. When you're a failing empire and there's a, a new kid on the block who's growing in power and is threatening to push you out, um, it's a version of basically burning the place down. Uh, if I can't have it, no one can have, can have it, you know? Although it's a step back from that in the sense that, you know, they're not nuking the place or, or destroying it completely, but certainly the, the, they have spread and sown chaos in the region as a last desperate attempt to hold on to their their the status quo, to maintain the status quo, which is a U.S.-dominated status quo uh, in the Middle East. So, you know, to stop any fundamental changes happening where we lose, let's, you know, upset the whole situation. Let's just light a fire in the place and keep it going until we can figure out how to handle the situation. Right. Well, this is why I introduced the war theatres, in quotes, together, because it seems that the three I have in mind have all been stoked recently, simultaneously. I'm reading this headline in The Guardian with respect to District AFPAC, 
That's what the Pentagon calls Afghanistan and Pakistan, as if it's just one territory, which it is for them. Kabul death toll rises in deadliest 24 hours Afghan capital has seen in years. Um, the Taliban apparently suddenly remembered who they were and rose from the grave. And no, of course, it's the Taliban slash ISIS because ISIS is now everywhere and yeah. nowhere. The Taliban kind of know who they are and don't mm. have a clue who they are. Mm. Uh, they say that nine civilians are killed every day. Uh, that's probably the, the background rate, but I think yeah. I think something like 40 were killed mm-hmm. in one attack. Probably, yeah. That was a recent one. Too. Yeah, well, on average, nine a day sounds about right. Yeah, that's, that's a wonderful legacy the U.S. has left uh, Afghanistan, you know, after 12 or 12, 13 years of, uh, while well, they're still there, obviously, they're occupied. There's, well, 12 or 13 years of occupation, but they're uh, they're still there. They have, I mean, the U.S. never deoccupies officially or, or completely never deoccupies any country. It uh, remove the bulk of forces, but it spent those years of occupation establishing a foothold that is non-military. I mean, you, if you want to overtake a country, you invade it with your military and you occupy it for as long as it takes for you to establish an economic and other foothold in the country. And then you take your forces out because you've replaced it with a different type of control. Um, so yeah, there's still I think there's still five thousand troops or something in Afghanistan. Probably. And, and there's several military bases. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> they didn't leave Afghanistan alone. They, uh, you know, they just lengthened the chain. So Obama lied when he said he's going to take the troops out. Yeah, well, he, he did. Never really did. Well, you can always well, you can take some out, but not them all. Yeah. You know, it's all just you know. False promises. Yeah. So. The thing about Syria is, though, that um, I think there may be something to there may be something in the air about a Russia changing its strategy on Syria, which is which has been to back Syria and support Syria against uh, Western attempts to get rid of Assad. Uh, they've been helping them um, through with economically, with uh, with funding and with military equipment. Uh, Iran has been doing the same thing, and that's why it's taken so long. This is a this is a color revolution, an Arab Spring revolution that um, that stands apart from all of the other similar revolutions inspired by the West. In that, it's gone on for a long time. It's gone on for an interminably long time at this stage. It's like uh, by the end of this year, it'll be uh, it'll be eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. It'll be five years almost, and that's crazy. It never takes that long. So and I think the reason it's taken so long is because there's been uh, help that isn't usually afforded to the besieged country or the country being subjected to the color revolution, and that help has come from uh, Russia and Iran. Um, I think the Russians may be saying, listen, at this stage we're willing to continue what we're doing and even increase the support to Assad and the Syrian government and the Syrian military uh, and this can go on forever, as long as you, the West, the US wants it to, um, we'll still be there and it'll keep going. You won't get what you want. Uh, so whenever you want to have a dialogue about, you know, um, what could, uh, another solution perhaps, then we're open to that, you know. And it may be at some point uh, recently, maybe there's overtures towards something like that happening, you know, some... Uh, well, we've already seen the US response. Which was the creation of ISIS. Yeah. Russia was saying, well, if you're going to really push this, we're going to push back here. 
And the US said, okay, if you want to do that, look at us go massive. We can go berserk to the point where now there are, the Russians are having to round up people in their own country mm. who are trying to join up with yeah. this mad yeah. ISIS thing. <clears throat> but I think the Russians are, are well, well able to deal with that and they've, they've considered pretty much all the options that, uh, or all the ideas that the US and the Western warmongers can uh, think of to try and achieve their nefarious goals. The, most of those, I think, have been budgeted for by the Russians and they, if not, they very quickly come up with a, a good response that um, that ensures that at this time, the US does not get to have it all some way and they're willing to just stay there and play this game of, or this war of, uh, engage in this war of attrition, essentially, and eventually someone's going to start hurting first type of thing. And it may be that the US is starting to, not hurting, but they're starting to wonder is there another way we can, you know, achieve what we want to achieve? Um, but I think it's difficult because I think their red line is Assad has to go, you know, and Russia's red line is Assad doesn't go anywhere. Um, I wonder if the Americans get a lot of feedback from European leaders on this because. A sizable chunk, if not half or so, of the refugees uh-huh. pouring into Europe from the south, many of them dying en route, are coming from uh, Syria. Mm-hmm. There's a country of 25 so million people, or once was, half of whom are displaced. Several million of them are outside the country. We don't have a good idea of the death toll. But if we look at the death toll for Libya, which is now 10% of its population, it's probably about 2.5 million in Syria at this stage. What, four years in? Death toll? Mm. Well, not officially. Official death toll is something like 300,000, 250,000, 300,000. Well, we could probably multiply that by 10. Well, maybe. Maybe. But uh, my point is I wonder if um, (laughs) there's so much blowback in the form of things they just can't hide anymore, people actually pouring out of the region, mm. desperate, um, that it's become too much of an issue for Europe and other countries closer, that it's kind of putting pressure on the empire to kind of wrap this up, please, or bring it to a resolution. Maybe, or maybe they're making hay with it, you know. The Brits certainly seem to be making hay with it the whole refugee crisis, you know, not that they're all coming from Syria, but uh, British politicians are, you know, saying that these people are a threat to our way of life, etc., and they need to be shipped back, you know, and that all works in their favour, because any threat, any threat, I mean, and the refugees are seen, are being presented as a threat to the British, you know, this influx of, of, of dark-skinned people from somewhere who want to live off our system is being played up in the media as a as a threat and to scare the average um, average British citizen and they're given airtime to really right-wing racist types in the media who are calling them scum and like cockroaches and all that kind of stuff. So that all plays into the, the hands of, of politicians who want to stay in power and who stay in power by their being a perpetual threat to the population against which uh, only the politicians can protect Mm-hmm. The, the citizens, you know. So that's actually a, that kind of a key negative, plank. You know? Yeah, indeed. That's a key plank, I reckon, of why, just briefly, 
let's get back why Donald Trump has has the ear of a lot of people. He's screaming, the bloody Mexicans are at the door. We need to build a wall right yeah. now. Uh, it plays in his favor. Um, the hordes, I mean, this goes back to commies. You know, the commies are coming. The up. hordes are coming, yeah. It's just, it's, it's a, as old as, as time, basically. It's what corrupt politicians do to uh, maintain or remain in power long past the time when they should have been, you know, taken out in the streets and, and hogtied and whatever else, you know, tarred and feathered and thrown into a hole somewhere. But that's how they stay in power, by, by you know, ramping up threats and scaring the population and saying that I'm the only one who can protect you from this. Uh, it's pretty pathetic, you know. Um when the people need to be protected from politicians rather than protected from each other. That's what effectively what they're saying. These are ordinary people, uh, refugees. And normal human nature, at least it used to be, was to uh, you know, be uh, cooperative and to care for people in need and stuff. And uh, ordinary human beings can't do that, have a, have a great capacity still to do that, at least in potential. But it's being overridden by propaganda of fear and division saying these people are you know are a threat to you when the real threat is obviously from the people who are saying that those people are a threat to you they're the ones who people need to be scared of uh, and certainly talking with British people they have ample evidence that they need to be scared uh, of their politicians not just they themselves but they need to be scared for their children of British politicians because uh, that you know the whole paedophilia thing in the UK is still ongoing and more and more revelations are, are coming out. Ted Heath has recently been thrown out there. Um, former Prime Minister. Former Prime Minister has been... A, a Le- was he a lefty or a Tory? I think, I think Ted Heath was Tory. Tory. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I mean, this is a guy who's signing off on uh, on torture, uh, torture measures uh, in the early 1970s for uh, British intelligence and British military to torture people, innocent Catholics in Northern Ireland uh, and at the same time. So he would sign off, this is a British Prime Minister, Ted Heath in the 1970s, would sign off on a, a torture measure. So yeah, torture those innocent people, it's, uh, it's a good idea. And uh, and then and then go to Dauphin Square to unwind where they would rape kids. Where you'd go and rape a, a child. So obviously these are the kind of people It's all that, in a day's work. Well these are the kind of people who obviously get off on torturing other human beings. Uh well, they can, when they can, certainly they have free, a lot of scope to order and enjoy the torture of other adults uh, because, you know, they can order those kind of policies and, uh, you know, direct or sanction other underlings who also enjoy torturing people to do that and they can cover for them and that kind of thing and they can uh, participate in it vicariously in that way. But um, it seems that those kind of people get the most satisfaction out of uh, torturing the most vulnerable. Seems like a scale, you know. They don't really like torturing yeah. people who aren't vulnerable. Uh, well, they do. I mean, you can make people vulnerable, obviously, but the stronger the person, the less satisfaction they get out of it. Mm-hmm. The, the weaker and more vulnerable the person, the more satisfaction they get out of torturing these people. And this is the British establishment. I mean, whether people believe it or not, that is a British establishment. That is the definition of the people who are in power and have been making policies in the UK for many, many decades. They're a bunch of torturers and child rapists. Uh, they're the people that rule over you. And people don't really 
allow that to sink in enough, really, I think, you know. Given the extent to which that kind of information has to be covered up to maintain public faith in a political system or leadership, the fact that so many people have been added from the British establishment as uh, child rapists and torturers of children, uh, you can, with uh, a fair degree of confidence, assume that there are many, many more to the extent that it's, it's, it's endemic and pandemic in the British political system. Um, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. When that, when so many come out, there's got to be, that's the tip of the iceberg. So it's reasonable enough to assume that a large percentage, probably a majority of the people in positions of, I'm not talking about your average rank and file politicians here, although some of them are included, but the people, the further you go up the pyramid, the higher the percentage of this type of character. Absolutely. Uh, the, the guy who's up for, up on charges, Lord Janner, I mean, he's in the House of Lords. This guy is as senior as you go in, in particular in the Zionist movement in the UK. And he's up on 22 charges. And there's a tussle going on. He's claiming dementia. I think I mentioned this on the show. Yeah, this is this has been. But he, the police say, or the courts want him in court. We'll see if he gets away with it. But um, nobody alive of any significance is going to no is going to be in court or that because that would implicate open, all of them. Well, that would open the gates type of thing. Once one person is uh, will be prosecuted for it, then they'll do underlings and people who the guys that they sent to pick the kids up type of thing. Those people can be. Dispense with or, or burned or sacrificed in that way. But there's no living person of political note in the UK who will ever be in court over this. And they're all the ones who are guilty. So most guilty. Uh, it's a nice world we live in, isn't it? Yes. Amari? It's really sick and it's the same in Holland. There are a lot of pedophiles in power and they get away with it. Um, there was one um, politician, and there's a lot of there's been a lot of research about him, and people are still trying to uh, get him in court and put him in jail. But the research and investigation has been dragging on for years and years, and nothing is being done. So yeah, I think this problem is pretty much everywhere, mm-hmm. and in high positions, and people don't know it. Mm. And it's sad that. If there is a news article about it, people read it and they think, oh, my God. But the next day they just carry on like nothing happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, it's it's a really, really dark world we live in. Mm. Yeah, people just carry on because of the implications of it, you know. Um, they have invested themselves in, you know, almost by default in the idea that there are leaders who make the decisions for them and they need those people in, in those positions to of power to, to make decisions for other people. Everybody, most people believe that you need this hierarchical structure and mm-hmm. that there are more competent people to take care of the difficult questions for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, they have a personal investment in, in that system remaining in place. And along with that, therefore, goes the idea that these people have to be of a a higher moral integrity as well to a certain extent than they are, you know, because they have to make difficult decisions where 
you know, there's questions of morality and integrity and stuff, and they need to be able to, to be smart enough uh, to be able to make those difficult decisions. And uh, so the idea that they would be the least suited to making those decisions, and therefore the whole system has to be taken down, is just, from a personal perspective, it's horrifying for the average person. They don't want it to is. go there. So they're willing to excuse yeah. lots and lots of things that these kind of people do. And but there's some things like that we've been talking about that they wouldn't be able to excuse as normal human beings. Mm-hmm. So their only option, therefore, is to not look at them, to ignore them, yeah. to just see, oh, yeah, let's not talk about that. It, it, it disturbs me to talk about that. I don't like talking about that. They don't know why they don't, but I just mm-hmm. explained why they don't. And uh, and that's that's unfortunately what happens. And that's why you have apathy and no action on the part of the people to do anything about this because... They're invested in there being a power, mm-hmm. a human power, in, in uh, above them to make decisions for them, to look after them, to care for them. And, it's and like a, a child and its parent, you know. And, and an yeah. untouchable power. They want it to remain an untouchable power. Yeah, they want. No matter what they might say. Well, it has to be. It has to have, uh, as being superior to them. There's a tacit admission that these people are superior to them because they're more capable. That carries over to questions of integrity and, and honor and character uh, they have to have have those qualities as well because it goes with the job and it's suggesting that they don't have that it's just it's it's terrible it's it'll pull the whole system down and it'll affect me personally therefore I won't engage in any research or investigation or thought processes that would ultimately uh, have a negative effect on on my sense of safety in this world and that's how the system's perpetuated. Oy vey. So, but tell us a little bit more about uh, what's going on. Because um, Holland is the, you know, most of the people on MH17 were Dutch nationals. Yes. So Holland, the Dutch government, got kind of lead on the investigation, or certainly played a significant role mm-hmm. in the investigation because it was their nationals. Um, what what's the word on the street in in Holland about uh, this investigation and how it's been perceived mm-hmm. by people? Well, um, when it first happened, um, shortly after, um, similar to the UK, like the Putin killed my baby article. Mm. There was a father that wrote an article to Putin and he said, why did you kill my daughter? Mm. So there has been an anti-Putin, anti-Russian um, sentiment in the uh, in the media. And, um, well, when you wrote your article, like pretty shortly after the incident, you said we can't really blame anyone because we don't have any proof yet. Uh-huh. And... I was appalled to see that in the Dutch media, it was like, oh, it must have been the the rebels that Putin uh, supports. And uh, there was one uh, journalist um, from a Dutch broadcaster, NOS, and he was criticizing a Russian TV report. There was a Russian journalist at the site, and he, the Russian journalist said that, hey, look at all this wreckage the Dutch investigators still haven't picked them up. Mm-hmm. And there's, there was even a door with holes in them. Right. So that would be the first thing you would take home mm-hmm. to investigate. But this is fairly recent. 
This isn't uh, around the time. This is like a year later. There were still pieces. Uh, yeah, a year later there were still pieces too. Mm-hmm. Dutch investigators went a year later and didn't even take yep, the no, key evidence. Okay, they didn't. And um, the Russian uh, journalist further said in the report that instead of experts being present at the site, there were members of the Dutch security agency. So hmm. these were people who weren't really experts in which wreckage, you know, was mm-hmm. the most important, that, that kind of stuff. And uh, at the end of the report, you could see the Russian journalist talking to one of the witnesses. And she said that, yeah, I saw another military plane. Mm-hmm. And so this Godford, Godfrey guy uh, from this Dutch broadcaster, he was uh, showing this Russian report to Dutch viewers and he said, Look how anti-Dutch they are, mm-hmm. because um, they want to brainwash Russian people's minds into thinking that it was Ukraine that shut it down and that there wasn't a book. So he basically said that the witness who saw another plane was lying, mm-hmm. and he also said that um, that the Dutch only took those parts they deemed important for the research. Mm-hmm. So those wreckage was still there; they were simply not important. Yeah. So why do you talk about it? Well, that's that's so. Yeah, that's nonsense because um, the basic step one in any, historically, in any aviation disaster mm-hmm. is, particularly over, over ground or even on water, is, is to collect as many of mm-hmm. the parts as possible because the way it's done professionally and properly is to take all the pieces that you can find and put as much of the plane back together exactly. as possible. There's been, the research so far has been very unprofessional. There was another Dutch journalist, uh, Ackermans. He was at the crash site and he took a piece of uh, shrapnel. And uh, he said that, hey, um, it looks like it belonged to a rocket fired by a Russian book. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, um, you're a journalist, you're not an investigator, and you're not really allowed to take a piece from the site and take it with you to Holland. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's tampering with evidence, yeah. That, yeah that's a criminal investigation as far as they're concerned, exactly. right? Yeah, and there have been Dutch citizens writing, like, he should be, he should go to jail. Mm-hmm. That, that's against the law. And um, there was one Dutch uh, citizen journalist who said, you know, I'm really unsatisfied with the way Dutch investigators have been doing the research so far, so I'm going to the site. And he went there and he spoke with witnesses. And they all told him that there were more jets in the sky when they b- before the MH17 was shut down. And what's really interesting is that they told the guy that um, none of Western journalists from the big mainstream media channels came to them. They were not interested in their stories, and the Dutch investigators never visited them to interview them. Mm-hmm. Because they only wanted their theory to be true, which right. is it, it was Russia, it was Putin, they're bad and they're evil. Mm-hmm. So yay, sanctions, and we shot ourselves in the foot. Yeah. And it makes me really sad because all these people who died in the plane, like for just to, you know, just to de- demonize Russia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so many people, they don't know. But I'm happy to see that in um, alternative alternative media, uh, there are a lot of Dutch people kind of starting to wake up, hey, something doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you have a lot of people who say Russia is evil and, you know, go away 
And I believe that Russia, uh, that Putin's daughter is, uh, is married to a Dutch man, I think. Mm. And there was a lot of media about her, about kicking her out or, mm. you know, that kind Sanction of stuff. Her. Sanction her. Sanction her marriage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, there was one uh, Dutch website that did a poll uh, for Dutch citizens and they asked them whether they think that sanctions against Russia should stay until the perpetrators mm. uh, would, are put to justice. Mm. And uh, 70% said, yes, let's keep those sanctions. And 30, 30% said no. Mm. So um, you could see that at least some people, they like seeing Russia being demonized because they think that Russia did it. Yeah. Even though the report is due in October. Mm-hmm. And like you said, the, f- the first preliminary report was full of holes. Mm-hmm. So it's, I just feel I'm just ashamed to be a Dutch citizen, really. Yeah. Well, I'm not a Dutch citizen, but I'm, <laughs> I'm ashamed to be a citizen of this world. Yeah. And uh, to a certain extent, to a large extent. Uh, yeah, it's, um, I mean, the way it was framed, the Dutch people was, the way you just described it, it was framed as, the way people heard it was, should sanctions stay in place for justice? Yes. Well, who's going to answer no to that, right? I mean, they frame it as, keeping sanctions means we will get justice. People are like, yeah, I like justice, so I like sanctions then as well. You so think that logically first comes justice. Right. And if someone did something bad, okay, you can think about sanctions, but right. not the other way around. Especially when there's no when it's there's no evidence for, for what they're saying as, as well. And then you mentioned that you feel sorry for the families of the people who died in the plane. Uh, for example, the Dutch citizens who whose loved ones and family members uh, died and are being used, their deaths are being used to demonize Russia. Exactly. Well, that's what's being, that's what's happening, yes. And that's an objective uh, assessment or mm-hmm. observation of what's happening. So I think it's reasonable to go back and say that that was the reason MH17 was shut down. Yeah, I think so. To too. demonize Russia. I mean, if what they do uh, with the results of an operation, uh, if, if you can see clearly what they've done with the results of an operation that was carried out, or an event that happened, if it's used for a certain thing, mm-hmm. then it's reasonable to assume that someone planned it that way from the beginning. And yes. I mean, that's the obvious parallel there is um, 9-11, for example, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and even with, with 9-11, well, even with MH17, we have the evidence because before MH17 was shut down, there was a very strong anti-Russian uh, movement, political yes. movement mm-hmm. uh, in, among Western countries, Western politicians. Mm-hmm. So they obviously had an agenda to demonize Russia. MH17 is shot down and they use it to demonize Russia. Mm-hmm. Well, it's reasonable and eminently rational to, to assume that uh, that MH17 was shot down for that purpose. Mm-hmm. The same, like I'm saying with 9-11, they had an agenda to spread the U.S. military uh, and project the U.S. military power across the world prior mm-hmm. to 9-11. 9-11 stroke of luck comes along that provides them with the perfect rationale and justification to do what they planned to do before 9-11. Mm-hmm. 
again, expand their empire. Again, it's reasonable to say 9-11 was done for the specific purpose oh, of Joe. expanding an American empire. And therefore, the fourth part that I haven't mentioned is that it leads you to the likely culprits. Mm-hmm. Because in all of these situations, and the same will be true with 9-11, there is never any definitive evidence presented and never any court case that that lasts and there's been other examples of this uh, where actual culprits are found and imprisoned and there is hard evidence that they are the culprits mm-hmm. um, it's interesting because um, there's a Finnish judge and diplomat named uh, Peter Iskola and he said that uh, we are facing a legal farce and a grave injustice for all the relatives of the 298 victims thanks to the fact that the Netherlands and Ukraine have forgotten in the case of MH17 that no one should judge or investigate in his own cause. Mm-hmm. And he's an expert in international air and space law. Right. And he says that what makes it even more ridiculous is that the Netherlands should know better as it is the seat for at least eight international tribunals. Right, right, yes. International so, Court of... Uh, yeah. They know the rules. They know they're lying. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's funny. You've also written about counter sanctions from Russia, which, in a roundabout way, is bringing the Dutch people the justice they s- no, not the justice they were expecting, but it's a form of justice. Mm-hmm. What's going on there? Um. Well, the, I think many farmers didn't expect that the counter sanctions would hit them so hard. I don't have all the data with me right now, but I can say that, for example, uh, the Dutch fruit exports, they uh, the sanctions slashed approximately 300 million euros. And then there was a project in Rotterdam, and they couldn't complete it because the Russians couldn't uh, pay up everything because of their sanctions. So they're losing a lot of business, a lot of business, mm-hmm. and farmers are feeling it. And um, truck companies, truck, truck manufacturers, companies, truck manufacturers. There's a big Dutch supplier to Russia. Yes, and they're losing their clients. And you know, Russia, Russia is fine with it because they have people in Asia. They're moving to other parts uh, of the world. Other parts of the world. Exactly. So the Dutch have not made a, a smart move, and at the same time, uh, our prime minister. He doesn't really do much about it. He keeps saying that um, about the UN tribunal, is that mm-hmm. how you call it? He says, we have to do that. We have to blame the people we think have been behind the MH17 incident, even though we haven't really any evidence, but I still want the tribunal. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't talk about how the people in Holland are suffering. He mm-hmm. doesn't talk about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You should work for the people. You're one of our leaders, mm-hmm. but he is Obama's lapdog. <laughs> well, it's like yeah, you said, the Netherlands, you summed it up, the Netherlands is Washington's BFF. What does that stand for? Best friends forever. Oh, yeah. BFF. They yeah. are. They've, they've been They've been a very buddies. compliant vassal yeah. state. Interesting. And it's, and it's shooting, it's backfiring in a way. You, you mentioned the figure of 300 million. Um, I think it runs into the billions for the Netherlands. Yes. And this isn't just funny money, you know, where you can simply make up the accounts. This is actual real cash lost in trade 
therefore directly impacts the real economy and yes. the, re- the people, the traders, the growers, mm-hmm. ordinary people in the Netherlands feel mm-hmm. it. Uh, I would love to... I would love for someone to do some kind of analysis Europe-wide mm-hmm. on what we're looking at. The one guy has attempted a brief um, and uh, cost. He's tried to come up with a figure of how much this is costing Europe. Mm-hmm. He was a German or Austrian investment, no, not uh, financial analyst, and he he reckons it runs into the trillions mm-hmm. to date. That's after just a year of the counter mm-hmm. sanctions. Yeah. So, there's somebody on the on the chat room here just uh, through. I think it's a new listener. They just threw up a comment saying, uh, "Holland has great people." Uh, does Holland have great people? And uh, <laughs> no, I was thinking more in terms of uh, immigration stuff and whether that's affecting Holland and how Dutch people are responding to kind of immigration and even how the authorities are responding to immigration or people in Holland in general. Is I mean, we talked, this is the anniversary of the Ferguson uh, shooting of Mike Brown uh, last year, and people are having in the U.S. today, I think, are having uh, kind of protests or demonstrations in the, in the memory of that. Is there any of that kind of stuff going on in Dutchyland? Well, they're kind of similar to the Brits when it comes to immigrants. They don't really like okay. people with a different color than theirs. Mm. Of course, not every Dutch citizen is like that, but there is certainly a... Um, some kind of racism going on. And uh, you mentioned um, police violence. Well, in the Netherlands, on the 27th of June, there was uh, Henrikus, he's an Ereban, and he's not ethnic Dutch, and he was at a music festival. Aruban, did you say? Aruban, yes. From Aruba. Aruba. Near Jamaica. Jamaica. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, he was making jokes, and he was being a bit loud, and uh, he was joking about having a gun on him, but it wasn't really sure because there are different articles about it. And one says this and the other says that, but it comes down to he was being loud and being noisy. And then the police officers gave him, gave him a warning. Apparently he didn't listen and then they decided to jump on him. But the way they jumped on him, they held him in a chokehold. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't moving at some point. And you could see from a video that one of the bystanders... Uh, made you could see that he wasn't moving at all he was already unconscious it seemed and instead of taking him to the hospital they take him to a cell and then a day later they said oh hey he's not doing that well let's take him to the hospital his head was totally swollen and he died Mm -hmm. so a lot of people in the hague especially because a lot of racism has been going on there they got enraged and they took to the streets and they said, we want justice for this guy. And what they did, well, the, the ME, the police officers with their big shields and everything. Mm-hmm. Right, police. The, yeah, the right cops, they came to the scene and they arrested, I don't know, 100 people of a young age. People are getting frustrated, very frustrated, because we have a lot of Moroccan and Turkish and from other ethnicities and they have been targeted by the police for quite a long time. And I think that this, that Henrique's death was really the last drop. And um, it wasn't the only case. Uh, There was uh, one guy, um, Mike Stock. He was um, 
drunk and he was a bit aggressive, according to people that were there. And he was waving with a walking stick. And people said that it looked like an axe. I don't know how you can yeah. see a walking stick as an axe. Well, it was an axe without the head on it. Yeah. 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 Oh, Otherwise yeah. known as a stick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he ran away, the two policemen, they uh, shot him dead. Mm. And he was a drunk man. Mm-hmm. And recently, um, there was a court case with the two policemen, but they were um, acquitted. So mm-hmm. uh, people have been talking about this a lot. And it seems that it's going to get worse because the chief of the National Police Service in Holland, he said that um, all policemen who carry a firearm should use it wherever and whenever pos- possible as a precaution in these times of terror threats. Mm. So he's supporting they should use it, using their guns. They should use it whenever and wherever possible? Yes. Really? Uh, that's a not, correct quote. Not necessary, but possible? Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> Fire at will. Fire at will. Who's will? Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> so, uh, no, that's... Rather than being, excuse me, the last drop, it sounds like these are the first shots. Yeah. On the way to... Mm-hmm. It's becoming little... Mimicking Big Brother. Big Brother. America. America. Yeah. As a precaution against, you know, people being weird. Shoot them first. Not respecting your authority. Shoot them first and then ask questions later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a virus spreading around the world, really, it seems. There's an infection. And, uh, I don't know, it needs an, an enema or course of antibiotics or something in some form cosmic antibiotics yeah you know little kind little of metro yeah pill shaped things falling on the planet um <clears throat> yeah was there anything else on, on holland or uh if you wanted to else not anything is pressing no not really but i i was Maybe wondering if we could talk about Yemen. Yeah? Yeah. It's been on my mind lately because the situation is getting really, really dire there. Uh-huh. It probably was for a long time. Um, well, the head of the Red Cross organization traveled to Yemen recently. And he said that the human cost of this conflict is such that no family in Yemen today has been left unaffected. We are particularly concerned about attacks on medical facilities and personnel. And the thing is, is that 16 million Yemenis are without clean water, which was also mentioned in the previous show, and 6.5 million are at risk of starvation. And I'm just appalled that the West doesn't do anything about it except for arming Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you, what do you think is going to happen? It's going to get worse and worse, and will people just keep dying and suffering because they're out of medication? Saudi um, has imposed a blockade, so food it's difficult to get food in, and uh, it's a nation that imports over 90% of its food, so mm-hmm. people are literally starving. So the number of deaths is much, much higher than they talk about in the articles. Mm-hmm. It's, yes, it's like Palestine version two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, until the uh, the Saudis can install a, you know, get rid of the opposition to 
what is it, what has effectively been proxy Saudi control of Yemen and mm-hmm. and U.S. also control of Yemen for a long time and British as well um, until they can completely destroy that opposition and install mm-hmm. some kind of puppet dictator again. Um, I think that they're going to continue with their kind of scorched earth kind of mm-hmm. policy and they have no problem with allowing people to starve, letting people starve for, mm-hmm. for as long as it takes. So they'll use whatever methods are, are, are necessary to mm-hmm. achieve that goal of sub, subjugating and subduing any uh, resistance to their established uh, mm-hmm. authority. And um, yeah, the US is completely complicit in this. The British are completely complicit in it, obviously. Uh, <clears throat> because they're supporting not only the, I think the US have been involved in actually firing mm-hmm. uh, Tomahawk cruise missiles from ships, US ships off the coast of Yemen, but they're fully supporting the Saudis, which are a bunch of um, pedophilic child, uh, pedophilic uh, head choppers. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, when we described the British establishment, and this goes for the American establishment as well, and what they're like, it's not strange that they would find common cause or an ideological mm-hmm. uh, commonality mm-hmm. with the Saudis. You know, the Saudis like to torture children and uh, cut the heads of people So, um, for no good reason. So um, their ideological hermanos with the stuffed shirts in Whitehall mm-hmm. in, in London and Westminster and in Washington. So yeah, and I read recently that Al-Qaeda seized three towns near Aden in Yemen. Mm-hmm. So they're using their proxy yeah. armies as well to take over. Yeah, Al-Qaeda invades Al-Qaeda. Yemen just yeah. at the same time that the Saudis invaded. Well, there you go. That's where Al-Qaeda is from, yeah. Saudi Arabia. Oh, they're the ones who attacked us in 9-11, aren't they? Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda, it rings a bell. It's, yeah, they were the... Uh, remind me what... They were the, uh, the 9-11 ones. Remember 9-11? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Twin yeah. towers, two towers, fell down, fell down. Airplanes, Pentagon, box cutters. Yeah, mm-hmm. Saudis. Yeah, they're that's where they're our allies. No, they're the enemy. No, well, it's complicated, but yes, they're, they're because I'm reading another headline here that ISIS, ISIS sets off bomb in Saudi mosque. The attack on. Thursday was one of the deadliest against Saudi Arabia's security personnel in years. Most of the victims were members and recruits of the Kingdom's special forces. It, but if ISIS are Saudi creatures, why why are Saudi creatures bombing Saudi creatures? No, Al-Qaeda is a Saudi creature. Oh, Al-Qaeda is different to ISIS. Sort of. Oh, my God. Um, it's hard to know. The, f- the situation is fluid. As, <laughs> the as, fluid dynamics. As the U.S. State Department the spokesperson would say it's a it's a developing fluid situation, and we're as soon as we've made up what the answer is, we'll let you know. Yeah, that's what's going to happen. I'm afraid the fire will spread and deepen. It's all we're going to see from here on out. Mm-hmm. Yemen, we're going to witness the Libya all over. Probably another tenth of the population mm-hmm. slaughtered. It's not just the Saudis. The other Gulf states are directly participating also. Yes. Um, remember, though, these... I think they might get away. Also, yeah. It may not get so, as bad as, for example, Syria, 
mm-hmm. or uh, mainly because well, while Syria is ongoing, because the people that they the Saudis and the, and the Americans are using and the British are using to fight this so-called you know war against um, Assad are occupied in Yemen and occupied in Syria. Uh, and they don't have, uh, you know, another 200,000 or something of them to mm-hmm. flood Yemen and create a civil war, quote yeah. unquote, in Yemen, you know. So mm-hmm. that's why you're seeing they're just continuing with these kind of periodic uh, airstrikes. And they've yeah. even, and they've even mm-hmm. put um, Saudi troops mm-hmm. on the ground in, in Yemen. So, um, yeah, the worst case scenario is that civil war situation because that's where they just, uh, you know, pull out all the stops and just let it mm-hmm. unleash as much death and destruction as possible, you know, um, because they can wash their hands of it and say, oh, it's civil war. Mm-hmm. These people are fighting each other and killing each other. Nothing to do with us. We're just trying to stop it. But when they ha- when they have to make it obvious that they're the ones who are bombing and they're the ones who are putting troops in the ground, there's a limit to a certain extent to the kind of death and destruction that they can wreak on our country. So in a certain sense, the Syrian people's suffering is uh, holding off potentially worse suffering for the Yemen pe- Yemeni people, you know. So, yeah, everything's just going to get uh, a lot worse across the board, Amari, and, um, you know, we just have to accept that fact and keep pointing out what the real cause of it is, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, not that we have any solutions, but um, <clears throat> I thought it was funny this week that um, uh, there's a U.S. public law that was passed uh, by the Senate and the House uh, representatives in 1969. Uh, it's called, it's known as the Public Law. Um, and I think every year the president, uh, in this case Obama, um, it's, it's, it's a law that, it's also called, uh, it's a law that pertains to, it's called Captive Nations Week. And it's every year from the 19th of uh, July for a week through the 25th of July. This is Captain Nations Week, and it goes back to 1959. That was a law passed where the U.S. government would reaffirm their their ties and their commitment to all governments around the world who are, or all peoples around the world who are committed to freedom and dignity and you know, opportunity uh, for everybody. And this was obviously in the context of the Cold War and was targeted against communist invasions and infiltration and taking over of countries. And at that time, they specifically um, referred to, they haven't changed it actually, it's bizarre. They keep reaffirming this Captain Nations Week thing and the president does it every year. And they haven't expanded the number of countries. They just keep reading. He doesn't read the, the number of countries, but the number of countries are finite on, on the original law that was passed. Mm-hmm. And Obama simply reaffirms this law with a few words, but he doesn't mention the countries. The thing he says, things the thing he said just this past uh, couple of weeks ago, uh, in this this year's Captive Nations Week statement, he said, "I now therefore I Barack Obama, President of the United States of America, do hereby proclaim July nineteenth to twenty fifth as Captive Nations Week. I call upon the people of the United States to reaffirm our deep ties to all governments and people committed to freedom, quality." Dignity, blah, blah, blah. But if you look at the original law, says the original law says, um, 
Whereas the imperialistic policies of communist Russia have led through direct and indirect aggression to the subjugation of the national independence of Poland, Hungary, Lithuania, Ukraine, Czechoslovakia, Latvia, Estonia, and a few other places that don't really officially exist anymore under these names, although they do exist, White Ruthenia, there's Romania, East Germany, Bulgaria, mainland China, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, North Korea, Albania, Ebel Ural, which is part of the Soviet Union at the time, Tibet, and the last one, well, one of the last ones, was Vietnam, Turkestan, which was in the Soviet Union, but also a place called Cossack, Cossackia. So these are the list of the countries that the U.S. Was, every year has, since 1959, has affirmed its commitment to the people in those regions, to their freedom and dignity and opportunity because they were under communist rule, right? I'm, yeah, I'm speechless. Yeah, but carry on. But the point here is Cossackia. Cossackia is today the Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic. That's where Cossackia is today. So this, just a couple of weeks ago, Obama, the White House, affirmed the U.S. people's commitment to the freedom to democratic rights and expressions of those people. Of people in a place called Cossackia, which Today, is people Donetsk. in Donetsk and Luhansk. So, well, put your money in your mouth is there, dude. Give them independence. Recognize the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. It's on the law books in the U.S. It's a, it's a mad world, but it's, you know, as, as mad as it is, I, I just, I'm actually often grateful to, to be able to witness how mad it is. I mean, that is beyond. The, it's just so insane. It's it's absolutely nuts. Yeah. They, they haven't changed the text. No. Of course, it's a law, but... They haven't, they'd have to, they'd have to oh. repeal the law, you know, or, or amend it at least, uh, include new... They are phenomenal. Law. And note that most of those places are bordering Russia. Yeah, well, that's because... Nothing changes. Yeah. So I think they left it on the books because it uh, it still applies to a certain extent, but that one place, Kosakia, doesn't really fit anymore. <laughs> anyway, uh, we mentioned, maybe we said a little bit about uh, the A-bombs. A-bombs. The glorious history of the United States of America being the only country in the world to drop uh, atomic bombs on civilian populations on purpose. That was to win the war, right? Well, no, actually. Because at the time, uh, I mean, even though they're horrific, horrific weapons, uh, their, their effects are quite limited. And in the context of 1945, when Japan had been at war for several years and had, you know, there had been a lot of death and destruction all around the world during the Second World War, uh, two bombs dropped on two cities that killed in the immediate aftermath, you know, tens of thousands of people and then, and also destroyed quite a few buildings, wasn't actually uh, that unusual or something to necessarily get alarmed about. No, because they'd already firebombed Tokyo. Well, Tokyo had been firebombed with perhaps even more devastation than uh-huh. it was caused by the two atomic bombs. So um, the Japanese, the emperor at the time, uh, heard about it after the fact. He had, they had to send some uh, officials to Nagasaki and Hiroshima to, to confirm what they had heard. 
uh, via American Radio, America, Radio Free Europe or something like that, Radio, Radio Free Pacific, Radio, Radio Free Asia, they had heard uh, that that had happened and they had to go and check it out, you know. And uh, I think the response was that, um, yeah, well, you know, we're not, that doesn't change the situation. And the situation at the time really was that Japan was ready to surrender, but not on the terms that had been forced on Germany, the extremely punitive terms that had been forced on Germany. They, they figured we don't deserve those. We wouldn't be willing to accept extremely harsh surrender terms. So they were holding out for better terms. Uh, but what actually forced the Japanese to surrender was the fact that the Russian, the Red Army, invaded uh, Manchuria. Yeah, on August 9th, uh-huh. two years, uh, 70, 70 years ago today, actually, August 9th. Um, and, and it took them just 10 days or so to more or less defeat what was left of the Japanese army and the emperor. That was what made it clear to the emperor that it was, the situation was hopeless. And that's what precipitated the defeat. So in the same way that the, the Soviet army had, the Russian army had defeated the Nazis, they also defeated the Japanese. Uh, and I think there's some suggestion that the dropping of the bombs was effectively to kind of, um, like people have said, it's fairly, uh, it's almost mainstream at this point, that mm. it was to send a message to Russia that uh, Russia, we got. Russia didn't have the bomb at that time and this was a warning that... Uh, and We're crazy enough to take it to another level. We're crazy enough to take it to another level. We bombed this country, therefore it's ours. We dropped atomic bombs in this country, therefore it's ours. We don't care if your troops come in and more or less defeat Exactly. It. And we that's exactly Japan. what happened. Japan became a vassal state. Right. And we're not interested, uh, the, the U.S. was saying, we're not interested in a division of Japan, which was, I think, the table at the time as well, a similar division to uh, as happened in Germany, where it would be split uh, you know, north and south in terms of Japan. The north, uh, northern Japan would become a part of the Soviet Union, and the south would be become kind of like uh, Korea as well later. Yeah. Um, so the U.S. wasn't wanted to avoid that. And so almost like, like a dog peeing on a bush, marking his territory, the American equivalent of that was to drop atomic bombs <laughs> uh, and also to send a warning, uh, you know, that I'm here, this is mine, stay away or, you know, you'll be in trouble type thing. And of course, Russia didn't have, the Soviet Union didn't have uh, atomic weapons at that time. So uh, that seems to be more or less the long, you know, the, not the long of it, but the short of it. Yep. And all this time, Japan has been military, militarily occupied by the United States. Today, Japan is a fully compliant and rearming itself with a view to standing up to, in quotes, China. On, on behalf of America. America. So, and your favorite uh, pencil pusher, Harry S. Truman. Oh, God. What a gormless gobshite. Yes. The best ever president that ever sat in a president's chair anywhere. In, one. in any universe anywhere. Um, pencil head Truman. Uh, he said, I realize the tragic significance of the atomic bomb. This is after it happened. It is an awful responsibility which has come to us. Responsibility. We thank God that it has come to us instead of to our enemies. And we pray that he may guide us to use it in his ways and for his purposes. Whichever way you slice it, the United States <clears throat> made a pact with the devil. Which this is why is it rules. I mean, it is Satan coming through this entire regime. This was, he said this on the 9th of August, 
after they had dropped one bomb already and as the other bomb was falling through the air, he was talking about, we thank God it has come to us instead of to our enemies because we were, we're using it in, in such a humanitarian way by dropping it on two major Japanese cities full of civilians that have no real military, well, military target is always civilian targets anyway. So, uh, and we pray. Thank God it came to someone responsible like me. Exactly. Right. Push the button. And drop it on a few hundred thousand Japanese. Yeah, that's what it's all about, you know. In a few weeks, the Russians are sending military contingents to participate in China's celebration of the end of the Second World War. I think it's the first week of September. So it's funny how history comes full circle. I mean, the Chinese and the, the Russians are natural allies, and they are finally realized that. And, well, circumstances has enabled them to realize that. And, uh, yes, again, Russia will be the worthy, let's say, the worthy party for celebrating mm-hmm. anything to do with that whole war. Mm-hmm. As the, I don't know, the, the pacifier in the end, that's what they do. They end, they actually end the shit that started by the Anglo-American elite. We'll see how it plays out this time around. Russia seems to play a historical role in pacifying the mad kids who run this planet. Mm. But that's good news. Hold your hold your breath, <sighs> or don't don't hold your breath. Okay. Well, this is you know seventy. This year is the seventieth anniversary. We've just been talking about the Second World War. This year is the seventieth anniversary of the end of the Second World War. Russia had its celebrations uh, earlier this year, and uh, America, the American government is celebrating killing Japanese people today. Uh, that's their celebration. Uh, they're all drinking blood in the White House here. Sacrifice to Yahweh, yeah. Uh, and um, the British, though, have their um, VJ day today, or not today, but this Saturday which is victory over Japan. Um, because the official day of victory over Japan was whatever, a few days, a week, a week after, or not even a week, five, five or six days. Didn't the British arm Japan? Yeah, but that's nearly here. Come on, oh, okay. get with the program. Anyway, so this Saturday is VJ Day. Uh, VE Day was earlier this year, victory in Europe. Now victory over Japan Day, it's a Saturday. But... There's a specter, a looming jihadi cloud on the horizon that is striking terror into the hearts of the British people because the Queen is involved in these celebrations. Uh, And their chatter, MI5 picked up on chatter in jihadi speak on the interwebs that... ISIS is, ISIS is planning, well, British jihadi ISIS types are planning to blow up the Queen. British ISIS types? How do they know they're British? Well, they have well, apart from the voice recordings of them going, All right, Giza. All right. All right. We're going to blow up the Queen, innit? Come on, mate. Let's blow up the Queen. We're real jihadis, us. Like L.A. boy, you know, like, mate, come on. It's a war, isn't it? Yeah, it's a war. It's a war, mate. Yeah, it's a war. I mean, this is Where's absolutely up? absurd. Yeah. Equivocating an actual conventional war with this 
I'm a proper dreddy, me. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm Arabic, me. From London. Arabian London, you know, mate, mate. I'm going to blow up a queen. So they're going to blow up the queen. Uh, yeah, that's what they're going to do on Saturday. So if anybody has nothing to do on Saturday, the queen will be blowing up. Just her, mind you. Uh, don't know how that's going to happen, but anyway, I'm going to be under her fancy carriage. Uh, Jihadi's going to blow up. Uh, actually, I think they compared it to Boston Marathon bombings, so pressure cookers. Pressure cooker bombs secreted under the Queen's carriage, and she's going to be blown blown sky high on Saturday. So that'll be an event. Uh, prob- they probably have uh, you know live coverage of it on, on the t- TV, so you can catch it live, uh, watch the Queen go sky high on Saturday, and then Jihadi John, you know, or Jihadi Jim, or Jihadi... Jehovah, whatever, running down the street shouting, all right, mate, we did it, we did it, bloody good one, we did it, mate, we blew her up, how do you say it again, hello, Akbar, yeah, all right, excellent, lovely, let's go for it, anyone fancy a beer? A pint, a pint. It was a pint, <laughs> come on, let's go for a pint and a pork chop, <laughs> hang on, you're Muslim, aren't you, yeah, mate. Yeah, but only right. sometimes. I like the point. So, <laughs> cut the pork chops. Uh, anyway, that's I'm not making that up. Queen's going to be blown up on Saturday. By that's the, a rather specific chatter they're picking up there. Yeah. Do they get it from site intelligence by any chance? No, well, Facebook. Oh, common sense and Twitter. Yeah. Facebook and their common sense says yeah. that the Queen's the Queen's for it this, this Saturday. Anyway, but she doesn't deserve it. There's plenty of other people. Uh, much more eligible for being blown up in British establishment. I have a list. Um, I won't read it out though. Um, yeah, so I think that's about it. Other than to say that uh, the US has passed new sanctions, we're kind of backtracking a bit here with US extra sanctions have been imposed by the US on Russia, specifically pertaining to a Russian Gazprom oil field in the uh, Sea of Okhotsk is off uh, Siberia out there in the kind of northern Pacific, I suppose it is, but it's basically right up there near the Kamchatka Peninsula. Uh, How can they sanction a Russian company in Russia? I know, (laughs) in Russian territorial waters drilling for oil, yeah, they're basically saying that there's, they said explicitly that there's a vast uh, or substantial reserves of oil in in this oil field that Gazprom is owns and is uh, is exploring, and that the sanctions are basically no U- any U.S. company seen to be, and by def- by extension any British or European company because you do what America says, uh, that is in any way involved in helping Gazprom by supplying any kind of materials to, to, to Gazprom to develop that oil field uh, will be um, will be sent to Guantanamo Bay. For 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 waterboarding. Well, they didn't say that, but basically, you're not allowed to. No Americans are allowed to. It's, it's sanctions in terms of you're not allowed to help Gazprom explore this because they Americans suspect that there's a lot of oil there, and it's right above. It's more or less, you know, it's relatively right above uh, Japan, and it uh, you know, <clears throat> a Russian strategic oil field right there in Asia, basically that could supply a lot of oil to Asia and to China and stuff. And the Americans don't want Russia to get any of its oil. Russia's not allowed any of its own oil. 
Uh, no, that's for us Western oligarchs. Yeah. You cannot be developing that right for your own purposes. Mm. Russia's response to that this week, whether intended or not, was to resubmit their claim to the vast continental shelf that extends all the way up to the North Pole, which you may have heard the Russians famously got the first ever submersible down to the actual North Pole under the sea in the Arctic Ocean and planted a Russian flag smack in the middle yeah. in 2007. So the Russians are, they have a good, I think they have a, they, they've submitted a formal claim to the United Nations yeah. that that entire continental shelf is ours. And the UN has said, we'll look at that not in the immediate term, but we'll review it uh, as, never, as, but, as soon as we get on to Washington. <laughs> the United Nations is going to uh, consult, you know, its namesake, basically, United Nations slash Washington. States, yeah. Uh, and, and then decide, you know, give the opinion of the international community slash Washington uh, <laughs> about whether Russia is allowed to have anything at all. And the result will be no. So, but we'll let By which you know. time the Russians will have a rig. We'll have done it extracting anyway. Extracting oil from the Arctic Ocean. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a good process. That's, there's a lot of really worthwhile time spent and uh, on things these days as far as politics goes. But, you know, it keeps them occupied and, you know, away from us. Uh, shout out to, Kent, who was saying, that's all right for you guys over in Europe. Oh. Um, the largest NATO, that's the Washington US military drill, to take place in Europe since decades, I think, is taking place in the next couple of weeks. Some 40,000 NATO, that's US troops, will be taking part in exercise in Spain, Portugal, and Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, under the pretext of blah, 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 Russia, increased tensions, got to protect Europe. But I'm with Finney and Cunningham in this. If you look at where a lot of the increased U.S. personnel, um, actual military equipment, and these exercises are taking place, they're taking place in the center, Germany, and in the south, southern periphery. Mm. And those three countries uh, just happen to be the three of the peripheral Eurozone countries with the greatest debt crisis and the mm. most likely to flare up next, like Greece did. Mm. Uh, Cunningham was suggesting that the primary reason for this is to lock down a secure Europe in the event of severe economic and social yeah. breakdown. Because the European authorities can't be relied on to uh, to slaughter their own people with quite such free abandon as, you know, NATO troops, i.e. American troops would. So it's always good to have them there to lead the charge on, uh, on you know, opening fire on protesters. <laughs> so um, the direct connection I want to make is that this is Jade Helm in Europe. Yeah, Jade Helm, Eurostat. See? So that's what Jade Helm is in that, the US. Yes, exactly the same. But it's not even that in the U.S. to a certain extent. It's not like they're... I think it's acclimatization more than anything. We're not saying that there's going to be some kind of mass protests where guns are going to be turned on on, on protesters, but rather that the, the militarization of countries and the acclimatization of the population to there being military exercises and a heightened kind of uh, atmosphere of fear and 
you know, threat, etc. I mean, having troops running around, you know, doing mock military exercises or real military exercises uh, is is central to that process of militarization uh, of 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 an atmosphere within a country. You know, so that's what they do. You know, yeah. you can't just talk about it all the time. You have to have troops on the ground. You know, they need boots on the ground in Europe. We're going to have to have boots on the ground in Europe. I think Trump would be up for that. He was talking about boots on the ground in the Middle East, you know, against ISIS. I think the next step is boots on the ground in Europe against the uh, protesters. And, of course, you know, America. Two headlines just from today. U.S. to share military base in central Poland. U.S. pledges $68 million investment in Estonian military bases. All your bases are is, ours. Is ours. Is ours. Uh, yeah, that's, I mean, it's just, but, it's by just the way, exposing of the reality that has been behind the scenes up until now is, and they're just, you know, giving it a, a more concrete, uh, solid manifestation by establishing more military bases. I mean, they already have military bases in all these countries that there uh, are military presence in all these countries, but they're just bolstering them. And, you know, it's, it's good. It's a good time because it's revealing a reality that has existed behind the scenes for a long time. Yeah. Final word on Jade Helm, the U.S. version. Oh, yeah. It's just one more military exercise. Anyone saying this is the plot, this is the actual mechanism by which they're going to bring in martial law is making shit up. I'm thinking of you, Pete Santilli. It's just one more exercise. It will probably come and go. It's about acclimatization over time. Yeah two conditions, more or less like martial law, but it's never going to be as overt as here no. comes the, the boom is being lowered right now. Mm-hmm. You won't see it coming. You will welcome it. You will want it when it comes. Mm-hmm. You won't even have noticed that yeah. it came. Yeah, exactly. Like 9-11. It may not be a 9-11 event, but 9-11 is an example. You couldn't find anybody almost in the U.S. immediately after, immediately after 9-11 who disagreed a military response over there in the world. Everybody wanted. And those who, the most you could you could find was that someone was maybe in two minds about it. Mm, maybe not. It's, maybe it's not the best idea. But, you know, so they don't want everybody. <clears throat> they just need a majority. And that's easy to achieve through that kind of uh, trauma. And, you know, so there'll be some kind of a trauma that will justify things that people previously would never have allowed uh, yeah so it was all your base or belong to us all your bases are belong to us and your monies all your monies and your bases are belong to us Amer- and America. your stuff us America so yes and there's a Wikipedia page and anybody if anybody doesn't understand that reference just look up all your base or belong to us and you'll be really edified, I'm sure. Um, yeah. So after all of that, and we already talked a little bit about pop culture in the show earlier on. So I think it's time for to get really deep into the pop culture uh, aspect of the world today because it's just so. There's so much to analyze and pick apart. Just so engaging. Yeah. So here's Relic with another pop culture roundup.
Greetings, fine people. Can you guess what time it is? That's right. We're in store for another Stuplender's edition of Pop Culture Roundup. Where we'll head down the starchy, fluorescent-lit bowling alleys of Tinseltown and hope to pick up a spare by knocking down every last one of those wooden celebrity pinheads at the end of the lane, if you catch my drift. We're coming to you from my isolated one-room log cabin on the ice-crusted shores of Upper Lake Canada. Now, I'm sure you all know that every town has its own village, idiot. You know, that one poor soul that everybody knows is not quite right in the head and who has to be treated kind of gentle-like. Well, even up here, this far north, we too are blessed with such a special individual. He's a curious little feller we like to call Al Gore, who who plods around in his one-piece down parka with a blow-dryer in one hand, trying to melt all the snow, rambling on about global warming and glaciers receding and polar bears molting. So sad, really. Kind of feel sorry for the imbecilic little bugger. Rumor has it that his mother kept him locked up in the freezer as an infant, and somehow it addled his brains. There but for the grace of winter, go I. Getting back to entertainment news. Tribute magazine writes the tribulations of the serial predator and old world comedian Mr. Bill Cosby. His star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame has been hit by vandals who defaced the sidewalk icon with the word rapist written across the front. Members of the public are demanding that Cosby's star be removed from the famous landmark and moved into a nearby alleyway, the Hollywood Walk of Shame, where he'll join other famous celebs like Lindsay Lohan and Charlie Sheen and Donald Trump. Wow, wow, is very nice. The once universally respected Dr. Cliff Huxtable has been under fire recently, stemming from dozens of accusations that he drugged multiple women over many years in order to take advantage of them sexually. Not one to be dismayed by critics or mountains of evidence, the voice of Fat Albert is retaliated by signing a multi-million dollar advertising campaign for the new Jell-O Pudding Pops, now in Quaalude and Rohypnol flavors. You're despicable. Tribute also reports that Disney World Florida has announced the removal of a bronze statue of Bill Cosby from the grounds of their holiday theme park. The now infamous statue of Mr. Cosby apparently has just been purchased by Michael Jackson's family to be displayed at his pederast-friendly Neverland Ranch. Sources close to the King of Pops' estate say that it's unlikely that members of the general public will ever get to see Cosby's statue because all the remaining admission tickets have been purchased by members of the U.S. Congress for years to come. <laughs> Heaven 
Welcome to Murgatroyd. Speaking of the 2,400-acre Neverland Ranch, Hollywood Life is reporting that flip-flop music artist wannabe Mr. Canyon West is actively pursuing the purchase of Jackson's $100 million property for his new pregnant bimbo mistress, Miss Kim Kardashian. The only caveat to the deal is that the remains of the elephant man, Mr. John Merrick, purchased by Michael Jackson in 1987, must be removed from the master bedroom of the Neverland Mansion in case Miss Cardashane sees the elephant man's corpse and her husband Canyon West standing side by side, and he wouldn't be able to tell which one was which. Hi, caramba! True story. In continuing on with awkward, albeit equally fabulous, segues, apparently Kim Kardashian's, the stepdaughter of one Caitlyn Jenner, who who used to be Bruce Jenner, and before that, who he she was, was, was anybody's guess. Anyways, Caitlyn is receiving oodles of kudos from celebrity media circles for so bravely coming out with her struggles as a transgender person. I recently read another story of some people who dismember their own limbs and cut off various parts of their body because they feel that they are trans-abled. And then you have this Rachel Dolezal woman. You remember her? The heavily permed, crazy, 100% Caucasian cracker who, through some fevered stretch of the imagination, claims she's actually a Negro woman and a civil rights leader. Her excuse for this obvious attempt at outright fraud is that Miss Dolezal identifies herself as transracial. She's white in skin and black in identity. Milk was a bad choice. Now, where am I going with all this transgender, transable, transracial nonsense, you might ask? Well, old Relic here has a confession to make. And I find courage to come forward with this news from those brave folks I listed above who've overcome impossible hardships in their struggle for personal identity. I, too, have been harboring a dark and shameful secret that I must share with you today. You see, the truth is, folks, that I myself, your old friend Relic here, I identify as a trans-automobile person. Yes, it's true. May the tabloids take mercy as I now enter into the public spotlight. You see, I have this old 1972 mustard yellow Chevy pickup truck with three gears and manual steering and more rust than body these days. And Well, she still runs like an old workhorse. Well, I always felt deep down inside that that old truck was actually an Italian sports car. It almost seemed like it was assembled at the wrong factory. Well, I'm coming forward now, and I'm saying that it's true, kids. I am the thrilled owner of a new Lamborghini, and nobody can tell me any different. I'm proclaiming it loud and proud. Look out, world, I'm coming out of the garage. The haters are going to hate.
is dead. Yes. And before we sign off for this evening, Relic would like to send his regards to the family of Hollywood great Mr. Omar Sharif, who passed away in his home at the age of 83. An acting legend, famous for his roles in Dr. Zhivago and Lawrence of Arabia, Mr. Sharif was respected by all for being a great actor and a kind human being, both on and off the screen. Rest in peace, sir. And once again, we're going to have to bring the show to another close and bid you all a fine evening in the fond farewell. As I stoke up the glowing coals in my cast iron stove, it's old relic here saying, always remember, keep your feet on the ground and your eyes on the stars. <laughs> Thanks for that, Relic. That was uh, that was uh, a particularly riv- riveting uh, pop culture roundup this week. Uh, I didn't know a lot of that stuff. It's all fascinating, especially the stuff where you say uh, true story. I totally believe it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we're going to leave it there this week. Uh, very special thanks to Amari Roos for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Yes, it was excellent. So, um, we'll be back next week with another show. Thanks to our listeners and to our callers and to our tellers, and uh, y'all have a good evening. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.